With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 40 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, we are joined by one of the most interesting and unusual power players in Hollywood. His name, Rabbi Marvin Heyer, and he wears many yarmulkes. He's the dean of West LA's Simon Wiesenthal Center, which he founded in 1977, and he also oversees its two principal offshoots, the Museum of Tolerance, which came along in 1993, and Mariah Films, which was added in 1995. You might wonder what the rabbi has to do with Hollywood apart from living in the area, and the answer might blow your mind. He is an Oscar winner, actually twice over, and a member of the Academy, the only rabbi who can make either claim. He won for two documentaries about the Holocaust, 1982's Genocide, which was narrated by Orson Welles and Elizabeth Taylor, and 1997's The Long Way Home. Over the years, the rabbi has cultivated many powerful friends. Jeffrey Katzenberg, Ron Meyer, and Brett Ratner serve on the Wiesenthal Center's board. Ted Sarandos and Jim Giannopoulos are close confidants. Michael Douglas, Sandra Bullock, and Christoph Waltz are among many Hollywood stars who have served as narrators on his documentaries for no charge at all. Will Smith and Jerry Bruckheimer have been honorees at his fundraisers. And Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes even celebrated Shabbat once at the home he shares with his wife of 53 years, Marlene. People like this exist in the rabbi's orbit because they are drawn to his tireless advocacy on behalf of the oppressed, and because he's not only a religious leader, but a bona fide Hollywood power player. If you want proof, look no further than the screening schedule for the Museum of Tolerance Theater during the Oscar season. Studios clamor for the opportunity to screen their films there because doing so establishes a sense of social importance around a film that tends to appeal to Academy members. This season, the museum screened Carol, The Danish Girl, Suffragette, Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom, The Look of Silence, and most recently, Trumbo. While the rabbi also focused his energies on a new $200 million Museum of Tolerance that is being built in Jerusalem as well as the next Mariah documentary that he's producing about the life of David Ben-Gurion. He's also the author of a brand new memoir called Meant to Be, and so I thought this would be as great a time as ever to sit down with the rabbi and find out how he came to be Hollywood's most popular and most powerful religious figure. Let's go to that conversation. Rabbi Hire, thank you very much for doing this. And to begin with, I gotta ask you, where were you born and raised? Uh, I was born on the Lower East Side of New York, 71 Cannon Street. Um, My parents were poor immigrants that immigrated to the United States from Poland. Uh, In the 19—my father came in 1921 Mm -hmm. 
and my mother came a few years later. They met each other at an immigrant uh, event where Eastern European immigrants gathered. And my father was a lamp polisher. He was laid off many times because he wouldn't work on the Sabbath. And uh, my mother was a very vivacious, outgoing. My father was more a reserved and quiet person. And uh, I have two sisters, uh, and uh, I have uh, Esther and Myra, mm -hmm. and they live on the East Coast. Esther lives on the Lower East Side. Myra lives in New Jersey. And uh, I'll tell you that um, when in the Lower East Side, the only thing I can remember about where I was born, 71 Cannon Street, it had no living room. There was a very small kitchen. Uh, there were three tiny bedrooms. And uh, so people said, well, how, how could you live, you know, all these years without a living room? So I, I said, the neighborhood was our living room. Yeah. We made the outside our living room, the streets around Columbia, Sheriff Street, Grand Street, Willard Street. That, that, that was the living room. Gotcha. And that's where I learned, you know, all the character of my whole life, really, whatever, even today, without being born on the Lower East Side, I don't think I would be who I, you know, whatever I achieved was made possible by the characters I met my early years on the Lower East Side. Now, were you raised as an Orthodox Jew, or is that something you became later? I was raised as an Orthodox Jew. My parents were Orthodox. The shul, in my case, the Litovitska shul, was the center of our lives. But I had always non-Orthodox friends, because the way it worked is I went to yeshiva, but 71 Cannon Street, not everyone living in 71 Cannon Street or in the, in the buildings nearby were Orthodox. Some were not religious at all. They were Jewish and not religious. And so I had two different kinds of friends. My friends from school, mm -hmm. from yeshiva, and my friends from the neighborhood. Right, right. And uh, I never introduced one to the other. I regretted it. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, so I played basketball at night with my friends in, in the, in the uh, building. Right. Now, did you encounter <clears throat> anti-Semitism as a kid? Not really. It's interesting. Uh, I think when you say as a kid, the only time I encountered anti-Semitism when I was a teenager, when I was working in the post office to help my parents, and the person next to me, uh, he, he, what he was doing is he was mailing, he was not even looking at the envelope, and in order to look to his superiors, to the foreman, that he was doing his work, he would take the mail and not look where it goes. And for example, they had all the states, he had a little box for every state. He would automatically just go very fast. And I said something to him, and I said, you know, I said, that's, you're not even looking at the address. You, all you're gonna do, you're putting it in the wrong place, and the person's gonna get their mail much, it's gonna take much longer. And he said, you dirty Jew, and he, I don't have to finish what else mm -hmm. came after that. And that was my first experience that I saw, you know what, that uh, anti-Semitism crossed the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. You mentioned crossed the Atlantic. That obviously, I imagine, refers to the Holocaust. When did that 
first becomes something you are aware of? Well, in, in, while I was going to yeshiva, there were certain things. Uh, one day, you know, during the memorial prayer, which is called Yiska, so the tradition, the Jewish tradition is that children whose parents are still alive leave the synagogue, and then they do the Yiska prayer for those that passed away. And it must have taken like 50 minutes. I'm standing outside with the other kids, and I asked my father, why it takes so long? And he said, because everyone is saying memorial prayers for those who were killed by the Nazis. So I said to my father, why don't we go to Zaydi Shul? Why don't we go to my grandfather's shul? It's a couple of blocks away, maybe it'd be quicker. <laughs> and he told me that the same thing is happening there. So I realized that this was a catastrophe mm -hmm. that happened, that every single synagogue is doing the same thing. Must be an enormous amount of Jews that were murdered. How old would you say you were at that time? Uh, probably nine or ten years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, to really, it really hit me then. And then uh, a year later, when I began to maybe a year and a half later, again studying for my bar mitzvah, then I had a, a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Flansgraben. He pinched my cheek as he was studying, teaching me the Aftorah, chanting the. Uh, the uh, prophetic, uh, every bar mitzvah boy has to read from the Book of Prophets, called the Haftorah. And so he, he pinched my cheek and he told me, remember, he said to me in Yiddish, Gedenk Moshe, he says, remember Moshe, you're not just chanting the Haftorah for yourself. You're chanting it for the millions that were killed by the Nazis mm -hmm. and never had a chance to have a bar mitzvah. Mm -hmm. And that stuck with me. I couldn't believe that, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it had a, gr a deep effect on me. Would you say that that, or perhaps some other moment that you can pinpoint, is when you decided you wanted to go on the path of becoming a rabbi? Do you remember how that started? I, I think that, yeah, you know, th that was an influencing. And then one day, Rabbi Rosenblum, who was a rabbi of mine in the yeshiva, yeshiva on Housen Street, was called Rabbi Shlomo Kluger Yeshiva. He used to have a system where he walked in every day with the Jewish paper, the Yiddish paper, the morning journal. And this day he walked in and he just said to us in Yiddish, do you know what happened this, this week? He said, we have a Jewish state, 1948, a Jewish state was born. And he just took out his handkerchief, shed some tears, and then said, nine years nine years too late for me. Meaning that his whole family was wiped, you know, was wiped out. So th that said to me, you know what? Everybody in the neighborhood, that one, one wants to, you know, people wanted to go into business, jewelry business, this business. And I said to myself, you know what? Maybe I think my strengths would be to go into the Jewish community to be, try to get, to be a rabbi. Mm -hmm. And I second-guessed myself many, many times along the way. I went to high school and then sat in the base medrash, which is the post-high school, where you, like graduate school when you're learning for the rabbinate. Mm -hmm. I second-guessed myself on the way. I used to walk the Henry Street to the yeshiva every day and say, how am I going to support a family? Is this the right move? 
Everybody else is going into business and other areas. What maybe I'm making a big mistake, and and I thought to myself, you know what? Where this is America. There are choices. It's not. I look look at the choices my parents had to make to say goodbye to their families in Europe, get on a boat to a strange land. It, it's. I I have at least the ability that my parents are with me here, and I ha, I, I in other words whatever. Whatever obstacles I would face were nothing in comparison to the obstacles my grandparents and parents faced. So I said, you know what? I'm going to continue on my plan. If you had not become a rabbi, what do you think you would have become? I probably would have been my brother-in-law opened a jewelry store in 47th Street in New York, and I probably would have joined him, Mm -hmm. become a salesman. A question that I have to ask is, throughout your childhood and adolescence, did you go to the movies? Oh, I loved the movies. The <laughs> movies had an impact also on my life, in terms of the Holocaust. Of course. Every Sunday, I remember every single movie theater on the Lower East Side. There was the New Delancey, the Palestine Theater, the Apollo Theater, <laughs> and they were, whether it was Cowboys... I knew every cow, I knew whether it was... As a matter of fact, one of the funny things, I remember seeing a little Hasidic boy... And he, I met him outside the Palestine Theater, and he, I said, you know, where, what movie is he going to see? And he told me he's going to see The Long Ranger. And he said, Long Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the point is, I saw that the movies influenced me because I, I, I know that for every outlaw and, uh, you know, bandit that there was, there was a Wyatt Earp, a Gene Autry, a Roy Rogers, a Tom Mix, a Hopalong Cassidy. And I said to myself, where were all these good guys? How come such a thing happened to the Jews in the Holocaust and nobody was able to round up a posse to go after those outlaws? And, and, I, and as a little kid, I'm yeah, saying to myself, yeah. how come it failed then? Right. And that motivated me too to basically, you know, that recognize the fact that you know, things don't happen by themselves. If you want to do something, you have to do it. You have to roll up your sleeves and be part of the process. You can't say, uh, you know, let the Jews be redeemed by osmosis. Who's going to redeem them? Right. And that's when, uh, you know, we're now doing a film on David Ben-Gurion, just about where was began the research. Without David Ben-Gurion, he was just a kid. He was 13, 14 years old in Poland, comes... And all of a sudden says, you know what? It's up to me to do something about it. And he did something about it. He became Israel's first prime mm-hmm. minister and declared the new existence of a Jewish state. So in all, yeah, when you, things have to be done, you can't look over there and over here. You got to look at yourself. Well, it sounds like you might have been a fan of High Noon then. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely a fan of High Noon. Where did you do your rabbinical training? And also at that time, did you assume that you would hold a pulpit in New York? Yes, but I, I, I didn't think I was be good enough to hold the pulpit in New York at that time. Also, there was also a, you know, a problem that I, 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 I was born into a house, a poor home, and I felt an obligation to assist. And I tried various ventures. One venture was that during the festival of Sukkot, you sell these weeping willows. And we used to cut them at the Sawmill River at the get-up at one o'clock in the morning and sometimes by the time we got to the sawmill river and cut them bring them to the retail market 
where they were sold on the festival of Sukkot for 10 cents a, uh, a, for one single, uh, you know, leaf, one single branch. And, you know, that wasn't enough money. So I thought to myself that, um, you know, I said, you know, I'm going to try to be a, a rabbi, and I guess I'd have to take a pulpit out of town. So I wasn't thinking in terms of assuming a position at the age of 20 or 18 mm -hmm. at the Fifth Avenue Synagogue in Manhattan. <laughs> I thought they have plenty of other rabbis that are not going to call me for that. <laughs> How did it turn out that you wound up in Vancouver, Canada, of all places? Well, first of all, my, my grandmother, a blessed memory, she used to take me on her lap when I was a very little kid. And every time, she must have said this like a mantra. I must have heard it from her dozens of times. Remember my kind, she said, remember my child. Everything in life is basheret, meant to be. And so now you ask me, how did I get to Vancouver? Well, the heater broke. I was studying for rabbinic, uh, my, in my rabbinic class, which was across the street from the main synagogue that housed uh, Rabbi Jacob Joseph's school because that was being used by high school students. I was across the street, the heater broke, and it was freezing in the winter. So we moved across for that one day. On that one day, Rabbi Bernard Goldenberg came. He was a senior rabbi in Vancouver, and he was looking for an assistant. And he came to the rabbis in RJJ, and Rabbi Jacob Joseph said, do you know someone that would be a good candidate? Now, had I not been there that day, there's no way they would have said me because I, there I was. I happened to be like five feet away. And he said, there's a good candidate. <laughs> and the, the, rest is, the rest is history. And this has happened to me throughout my life. For, for example, when I was a kid, I had on my desk, you, you remember it was a very small desk, had glass on top. I had baseball stars. Mm -hmm. I had movie actors, and I had great sages of Israel. In the great sages of Israel, I had Rabbi Aaron Cutler, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. On baseball, I had Joe DiMaggio, <laughs> I had Yogi Berra, and I had just seen From Here to Eternity, and so I had a picture of Frank Sinatra. In later life, I met all the people that were in that glass case. That's amazing. And so I, when I look back and I think about that, I say that my grandmother was a wise woman and when she said that everything in life is meant to be. Hence the title of your memoir. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so you wind up in Vancouver. It seems like you made a big impact there. It was not when you arrived a very vibrant Jewish community, but you, from everything I've read, inspired a lot of people to get more into it, including somebody named Mark Belsberg. Is yes. that true? Can you tell us about that? Well, what happened was, see, the Vancouver, the facility was fantastic, the, the synagogue, but only elderly people came. And if it wasn't a bar mitzvah, you had 1,200 seats in the synagogue and maybe 50, 60 people. I saw the writing on the wall. This is going to... You may have 600 families that belong to the synagogue, but this synagogue isn't going anywhere unless you invest in youth. So I got some of the lay leaders, like Jack Diamond and others, to invest. Jack Diamond was not religious, but he believed in being a member of an Orthodox synagogue. 
When I say not religious, he didn't come every Shabbos. Mm-hmm. He came on Yom Kippur. But he understood. If you don't have the young, you can close the doors. So they came up with the money that we were able to host Shabbatonim not just for uh, events, not just for members of our synagogue, but from other synagogues or those who didn't go. And one of them was Mark Bellsberg. And, you know, he was a young ki- uh, teenage kid, and his parents did not belong to our synagogue. They belonged at that time to the uh, conservative synagogue. And because we had all these events, these young people, by the way, we always had movies. You showed movies. There. Every Saturday night was movie night. <laughs> Even if it was Laurel and Hardy or whatever it was, it was movie night. That's great. And uh, we attracted these young people, and eventually they really got into it. And when I left Vancouver, I'm proud to say, oh, almost 50 boys and girls went on to Jewish high schools and yeshivas all over the world. Wow. And, uh, you know, and, and the synagogue was, you know, we, we, the young people restored the synagogue's vibrancy. I mean, I was only one person working there. I brought in Pinky Bach, who was a phenomenal educator. He was like an automatic turn-on. <laughs> when you meet him in the street, you just followed him. And uh, he was there, and he completely turned the community around, uh, you know, as the principal of the day school. Right. And as a result of that, it had, had an enormous impact. Unfortunately, he died at a very young age of, a, of an aneurysm or a heart attack in uh, Riverdale, where, where he was then. So, but that's what happened. And this Vancouver opened my eyes to the wider world. You know, I said when I was born in 71 Cannon Street, I had two sets of friends. Vancouver taught me most of the Jews are not Orthodox. If you want to have an impact, you have two choices. You could say that, oh, I'm so orthodox, I only want to talk to orthodox people. Or you could seek to reach out. And in Vancouver, I learned that the future of the Jewish people, it doesn't matter, not, you know, there are some people who are orthodox who only believe in hitting homers, which means as follows. A person has to be a Sabbath observer, he has to put on film, he has to do the whole thing. Otherwise, I, I, I come from the philosophy, a good bunt is a great thing. Right. Singles are great. Right. Doubles are wonderful. Small and ball. You don't always have a, You don't always hit homers. Right. But putting someone on, a, on base allows you to set up the potential for a score. Sure. So while you were, I believe, still the rabbi in Vancouver, you took a trip in the mid-70s that I think changed your thinking a lot. And... Maybe you can talk about what that entailed. You mean there are various trips? You mean the trip with Simon that I met Simon, or the trip well, when I went Ben Gurion? I think first of all the importance of a yeshiva, right, and also the idea of having seen the Holocaust sites, right. Well, when I took a trip to Europe, first of all, I had the privilege of meeting Simon Wiesenthal, unscheduled. Uh, we never expected that he would come out. He came out, said hello. And spoke with us, and this is what sort of a trip—a group trip. Of no, this is when I went before. <clears throat> my wife and I, and a few people went to the Holocaust sites. Okay, we went to Mauthausen, and there we come to the Jewish Documentation Center, and we ask, uh, you know, is Mr. Wiesenthal in? 
and the secretary says he is and she tells him he comes right out and talks to us no scheduled appointment or anything and I see this man he's looking the only one that stayed behind you know to look for to bring to justice these horrific murderers unprotected no police outside nobody inside no security system inside and you know and there he was and a larger than life you know figure and I said I wonder what motivates him that it had a tremendous impact on me that he is a man that he was an architect by profession he could have gone back to as many other people after the war they went back to their original tasks and he remained behind you know his wife later on when I became to know him very well his wife Celia used to tell me my husband has two wives me and the other wife is six million dead Jews Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that had an impact on me and then I took a group of young people to Israel and also to the Holocaust sites Mm -hmm. and when we were in Israel we had an opportunity in, in Steboka to meet David Ben-Gurion. Wow. And uh, David Ben-Gurion spoke to the group, and I'll never forget what he said to them. He came out, the teenagers that were Mark Belsberg and Paul Clayman and Harold Grunfeld and Laura Dunner and many other people from our, from our synagogue and from other synagogues from Vancouver. And he said to them, young people, he says, I want to tell you with a thick accent, his English was with a very thick accent, I want to tell you something, he says, from an old man, and mark what I'm going to say, he says, when Israel was created, we could not have created Israel without the diaspora Jews. The diaspora Jews made possible the creation of Israel. But there will come a time where Israel will be responsible for diaspora Jewry. In other words, he foresaw a time where Israel would be sent the field, and it would, it would, it would, ha- it would, and uh, this is the time. Look, today we have ISIS, we have withdrawal of Jews from Europe, droves are leaving France. And basically, what Ben-Gurion said is now the center stage has shifted, that it is diaspora Jewry that looks to Israel for leadership. And it, that's a remarkable change. Yeah, but that had a big impact on my life. And on, on, I, from there I saw the opportunities that, uh, you know, that existed. And the fact that there were so many young people that needed to be reached. And I said to myself, you know, um, Vancouver, it's a wonderful, it was a wonderful place, but my kids are getting older and I see there is so much potential in the West Coast for creating a yeshiva. Which did not have one yet, right? Right, did not have a yeshiva. A yeshiva that would, this would have been, the original idea was for university age students to attend that who could take courses in in, Jew, in Judaism, various aspects, different courses, and it would be established in the West Coast. Why the West Coast? Because it was underdeveloped. New York 
have the Jewish Theological Seminary, Yeshiva University, to have the Hebrew Union College in New York, but LA was underdeveloped. And how did I know about LA? We kept taking trips with young people, NCSY, during all of these, uh, during the winter break, and I'd, I'd come down to LA and I saw it was a wonderful community. What would those trips under- before? Like, what would you come to LA for? Well, we would bring uh, 30 or 40 teenagers who uh, only saw Jewish life in Vancouver, a small city, and introduced them to a larger city. Uh-huh. And they would come here. And meanwhile, I took notice, got to know the community here, and saw that it was underdeveloped, that had great potential. And so we uh, left Vancouver. Well, let yeah. me stop you yeah. there for a second, because this comes <clears throat> back to why I brought up Mark Bellsberg, right? right. Now I'll tell you the story. Okay. So what happened is, here we are, my kids are teenagers, um, we have two uh, boys, Ari and Avi. They have no place to go because Vancouver doesn't have a facility uh, for high school, just a, just a day school. And I had, a, I had a sabbatical for three months in Jerusalem. And while in Jerusalem, I, um, my wife uh, told me to go into the Gera Rebbe, a great sage, and ask him what to do. I, so I went in, I wrote out a kvittle, because I, I come from, that's what my grandparents, they used to go to great Hasidic rebbes and ask them. So I wrote out and I said, look, I have a dilemma. My dilemma is I can remain in Vancouver for life as a rabbi, but there's no place for the children to be educated. What I'd like to do is create a yeshiva for university-age students in Los Angeles, but I don't know anyone there. My question is, should I remain in Vancouver where I'm secure? And I wrote it out, and the rabbi, Rabbi Israel Alta, the Ger Rebbe, looked at it, had his glasses like this, and at the tip of his nose, and quickly read my thing, and then said, go to Los Angeles, you'll have great success. <laughs> in Yiddish. Right. And I told that to my wife, we come home. I, I had to come home because uh, Paul Clayman, there was a wedding that I promised to officiate. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the wedding, during the wedding, you, there's a celebration for seven days, and Mark Bellsberg, he hosted in his home, he had a kosher kitchen and a non-kosher kitchen. And Mark's dad was there, came over to me, and he said, Rabbi, things are not the same. And my, my wife was at the wedding, and she said, you, there's something different. Uh, you, is there something different that changed since you've been away in Israel? I have no idea why I told him the truth, because the truth of the matter is, he wasn't a member of my congregation. Right, right. And I, I told him, and I said, what I want to do. He said, do you know anyone in L.A.? I said, no. He says. You're crazy. He said, Rabbi, I would never do that. Here you could stay, you have security. But he said, look, if you feel that way, think it over. I want you to think it over for 30 days. If after 30 days you still feel the same, come to see me. I came to see him, told him my plan, and he basically said he and his family, his brothers, would commit $500,000. Wow, and this is their, they had sort of a furniture empire, right? Right, and also they were in financial Uh business, right. And there's my grandmother. Amazing, yeah. 
and uh, we came there. Yeah, there was Tenenbaum, and there was also, no, Tenenbaum and Arnal. There were a lot of people that contributed later on. to the, But, but this see. was the start. The initial was this okay. This was the initial. Okay. And then what happened was that we opened the yeshiva, and we got a good crop of students, 30, 40 university students that came from all over the country. But before we even go yeah. that far, you, you say you opened the yeshiva. First, you have to you know, get no. the land and yeah, all this. Yeah, so no, tell- we bought a building. You bought a building. This was okay. Yeah. Just Right the- here, across the street. On Pico. And on Pico. It was the Reese Davis. It used to be the Reese Davis Clinic. Okay. And what happened was that um, they, were, they were merging with Vista Del Mar. And this created an opportunity. The only problem was that they wanted... Uh, originally, they wanted 1.2 million for the property, and they even removed the the sockets. There was nothing in the. In other words, you couldn't have a light. So, when the 500,000 that uh, that the Bellsberg gave and others were enough to put down the deposit, we uh, Bill Sam Bellsberg's brother Bill negotiated it to down to 900,000. So we bought the property for nine hundred thousand. We wanted one point two million, and now we had a magnificent. We had a big building, yeah. big property, no students, right? Not a single student, and we also uh, didn't have a place. The funniest thing was I had to take a install a telephone with a hundred and fifty foot extension because I, there was a, I would put a chair in there, and if the phone rang. I, I was afraid, so I would take the phone with me. And um, in the beginning, so to make a long story short, the yeshiva for adults, for, for university students, functioned that way for two years. Los Angeles community then said, there's a greater need here, and we see that you're successful. Why not open a high school, boys and girls, two separate buildings that we should do? And they're... Their argument was really persuasive because we had 40, 30, 40 university students. We would have to give that up. And we opened the high school, which exists today, still today, and has today some 400, 440 students. Wow. And, 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 uh, and, and, and from there, before we opened the high school, and we, we, we just had opened the building, for a university type uh, yeshiva, I had another idea that came to me. I was, I'll never forget how it happened. <clears throat> we were at the Tarpits. Here we go to the Tarpits, we take our kids, and we, I was fascinated uh, you know, to have right here in the, in the community facility that had ancient fossils of dinosaurs. And I'm just watching, and a girl, little girl, I think she was 12 or 13, asked the guy that was taking us around whether or not, whether dinosaurs can come back. So the guy goes into an elaborate explanation, (laughs) not to worry, they can't come back because of climate. It's impossible for them to come back. And on the the way home, I began thinking to myself, you know something? Because I'd always been interested in the subject of the Holocaust and when I was in Vancouver, I met Simon Wiesenthal again. I said to myself, you know what? What if the question was, can human dinosaurs come back? Dinosaurs like Hitler and Himmler. And nobody would be able to give the same answer that because of climate control, they're not coming back. 
I said, so why don't we, in the same building as houses a yeshiva, build a Holocaust center? And I and and, and walk back, to, you know, from after the play, after the visit to the tar pits, and on Shabbos when I was walking home from the synagogue, I decided, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask my wife. She's been with me all these years. She has good judgment, whether she thinks I'm off the wall. So I asked my, my wife, and my wife said to me, it would be a great addition to that building. And you, everybody, nobody would say that it's a bad idea. It's an excellent idea. But the question remained, Holocaust Center without a name. Should we name it to the person who gives the most money? That's what many other people. Mm-hmm. So I said, I would like to name, I said, my idea was, what if Simon Wiesenthal lent his name? And that's how I got the idea to call him. But I knew I couldn't go there alone because all I was was a rabbi in Los Angeles that opened the yeshiva. And that wouldn't be enough to convince Simon Wiesenthal. How does he know that he can entrust his name to a rabbi that opened the yeshiva to build a Holocaust center? And so I took with me Roland Darnell, whose parents were, were lived through the Holocaust in France, and whose greatest disappointment was that they lived amongst their neighbors on the best of terms. They ate in each other's homes. They were invited to, to uh, you know, it was, a, it was a big apartment house. And when the Nazis came in and the French police and they ordered French citizens to give up the Jews. These neighbors stood outside and clapped as Roland's parents went out, were forced out by the Nazis. They stood there and clapped their hands. And uh, he told that to Simon, and he accompanied me. Mm-hmm. And uh, Simon was very impressed. He was a younger man. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was very, he said, you know what? I like the idea. But I need to send my lawyer, Marty Rosen, to see what he thinks. He'll, because I'm too emotional about it. And Marty Rosen came and he said, you know, I think Rabbi Haya can do it. And you should give him your name. And uh, he did. Just out of curiosity, was there any other terms involved or was it basically... No. let me explain. Yeah. There's a lot that's been written about this. Yeah. They don't know what they're... Th- yeah. Here's exactly what happened. Okay. Simon Wiesenthal never took one penny from us. The Simon Wiesenthal Center was established in 1977. In 1984, I received a call from Simon. He received funds from Dutch citizens and they used to send them money and that's how he ran the Jewish Documentation Center. For some reason, it dried up. And he wasn't receiving from the Dutch citizens the money that he had normally received. So he said to me, can the center assist in any way? So in 1984, seven years after he gave his name, seven years after he gave his name with no, no uh, conditions uh, uh, whatsoever, quo, right, right, our right. board decided that it's the right thing to do to help this man. Right. And so we used to send him on about $6,000 a month. Mm-hmm. And we sent him regularly. $6,000 a month to help him make up what he lost from the Dutch. Outside of that, right. never. He, he made his living by 
he had lectures. He had an agent and he had lectures in the United States, Canada, and in England. And that's how he ran. And so, it, it, in, in other words, he never asked for it. Sure. He and only said to me, you know, he would have been satisfied if, let's say, we approached a donor and a donor would contact him. So we said the smarter way, and we gave him every month from 1984 on. But what was been written by uh, one of Simon's biographers, there are many books mm -hmm. on the subject. So one of the, he writes that we, a complete, uh, absolute, not true. We would never have signed such an agreement. Right. Because we didn't, didn't have, have any that money. money at that we didn't time, have any right. money. At the so, but it's amazing that just seven years later, you guys yeah. were in a position to be well, able to send because, six thousand a month. Because what happened is the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Yeah, we our membership. Soon as we started, Took people off. everywhere, from Idaho, from Iowa. You know, tonight's the Iowa. We have yeah. people from Iowa sending us from <laughs> Davenport, Iowa. Right. Okay, members of the Simon Wiesenthal Center from all over the world because Simon Wiesenthal was. Everybody regret, you know, regarded him as a hero, including stars. But also, and he didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> right now, but also at that time, there was no equivalent of Yad Vashem or anything in America. Right, there was nothing. The United States Holocaust Memorial Council <clears throat> started President Carter. It was in nineteen in nineteen seventy nine. In nineteen seventy seven, America had nothing. And certainly nothing on the level of what we were we were going to build here. Sure. And so uh, that's how the Simon Wiesenthal Center was born, and uh, it, it it was a small <clears throat> Holocaust center to start with, <clears throat> and uh, you know it was only in 1989 when the nursery owner came, our neighbor, and he said, you know, I I'm going to sell my nursery. Maybe you'd like to buy it. And this was the opportunity, and we bought it, and there was born the Museum of Tolerance, which opened in 1993. And we will come back <clears> to that. But right. first, I want to ask you one other Wiesenthal-related question, which is that I have read, and again, as you note, there are some yeah. sources that are more reliable than others, right. but one story I read just blew my mind, which was that you and he were on a flight, or going to board a flight once when something crazy happened? No, it was in the, it was in uh, Washington, D.C. We were about to board a flight for Chicago. Mm -hmm. And what happened was Wallace. He, Wallace was a, someone on Simon's list. Remember, Nazi war criminals that came to America changed their names. So, you know, a guy can have a nice sounding American name or whatever, but it might not be his real name. So, at that time, you know, there's no security. We didn't have to go through Megs and all that that we go through <laughs> now. So I had to, there was something wrong with the ticket. I went to the ticket counter. I told Simon, you uh, wait here. And as soon as I finish, I'll come back to you with the tickets and everything on our way to Chicago from uh, Washington, D.C. I'm at the ticket counter and I hear loud shouts and Simon's voice. So I immediately take my tickets, I tell the lady I have to go back, and I go back to where I had left Simon. And the scene that I see is that Simon is shouting at an old person, and the son has a fist toward Simon. And I said, Simon, what happened here? And he said, this is Wallace. He is on my list. I sent to, to, the, to the United States. He is a, a Nazi war criminal, and his son got aggravated that I recognized him, 
and his son wanted to hit me. And this started so immediately, I made a scene and an American uh, uh, Airlines representative came over and they took Simon away with myself to the counter. And I said, look, this is Mr. Simon Wiesenthal, the world's most famous Nazi hunter. And he said that this person also going on this flight, he's on one of his lists. So to the credit of American Airlines, they told Wallace he can't go on the plane, not on that flight. And they allowed Simon Wiesenthal and me to continue on the flight. And do you know what happened with Wallace? No, Wallace, we knew his case had been well known by the Justice Department. They could not extradite him. In other words, because the main reason they couldn't extradite him is what happened with most of these governments were reluctant to take the case. In that time, Germany, Germany later changed its mind. But in the early stages, Germany also, they required, they did not accept documentary evidence. What they wanted is personal eyewitnesses. In most cases, the eyewitnesses were dead. Mm -hmm. Later on, like today, the German government reversed itself and they now accept documentary evidence as sufficient to say that we're gonna charge the person. But in those days, they didn't. So Wallace was put on on a later flight. Simon continued to be agitated against him. And in the end, Wallace, I think, passed away, but he was not extradited. Interesting. And You know, see, John Demianic originally was not extradited. Later on, when they changed the rule, even though John Demianic was not found to be Ivan the Terrible, they accepted documentary evidence that he served as a guard mm-hmm. in the death camp, Sobibor. So they brought him, him back, back to Germany yeah, yeah. for trial. Right. So the point is that that's what happened in the Wallace case. Amazing. It seems like you very quickly built up a donor base in the Los Angeles Jewish community. Who from the Hollywood side of things were the first people to get behind what you were doing? Well, <clears throat> we, there were two, uh, Jack Lerman and Johnny Francis. They were involved in an organization called the Eddie Cantor Charitable Foundation. They loved the idea of Simon Wiesenthal and the Simon Wiesenthal Center. So they came to us and they did a number of dinners that benefited us. So we were in, totally involved in the dinner and we were the recipients of the funds. And while that was happening, they were introduced us to the sort of to Hollywood. And while that was happening, uh, we had a dinner, we raised money, and all of a sudden, I receive a call from Mickey Rudin. And Mickey Rudin calls me and he says, uh, you don't know me, he says, rough, rough sounding voice, <laughs> I'm Frank Sinatra's attorney. He says, you're gonna get a call from Frank Sinatra. I almost fell off the chair. <laughs> <laughs> and he, I said, oh, thank you very much, Mr. Rudin. You know, and he said, don't thank me. I told him not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, he, said, he goes on to explain. He right. says, no, I have no, don't take it wrong, Rabbi. I told him not to do it. I'm his lawyer and advisor. You guys are just starting. Uh, we have no idea whether this is, you're going to be successful. And I said to Frank, why would you want to lend your name? 
I mean, it's ridiculous. But Frank is Frank. And he's, he, you may get a call from him. I'm just giving you a notice. And I got a call from Frank Sinatra. <laughs> and what did he have to say? He said he read in a Jewish newspaper that we were starting the Simon Wiesenthal Center. And he wants to be helpful. I, I just couldn't believe it. So I said, and what, what how, how, Mr. Sinatra, would be the greatest honor to have you help us. And I, I said, he says, well, he says, Rabbi, he says, you know, I like to not say things. I like to just do it. Uh, can you drive, can you come out to my home in Rancho, in Mirage, in the Tamrask, I think where he lived. And he, and he says, can you come out on Sunday? And I said to my soul, you know, of course, I said, Frank, I'd be delighted. I said, How do, what's the address? He says, don't worry about the address. I'm going to get you the addresses. I want you to come out. Bring with me. Tell me exactly what you're trying to do. Bring, the, bring it, and let's see how I can help you. So my wife and I, we go, we drive out, and we, all the way there, we're saying to ourselves, how did this happen? I mean, you know, <laughs> we just can't figure it out in, the, in a million years. And we come there, and Barbara Sinatra <clears throat> invites us into the home, and Frank is sitting there, very casual. And <clears throat> he says to Barbara, uh, let's get uh, Danny Schwartz, our neighbor. Have Danny, and then he says, have Danny bring in, uh, he says, let me tell him. And he calls and says to Danny, he wants him to bring the Jewish directory. You have that, he says, and Frank Sinatra says, you know, I'm an honorary Jew, but he's the real McCoy and he's got the, he's got the addresses. Let's see what we can do here. Can I just ask quickly, why did Frank see himself as an honorary Jew? Why was he interested in this in the first place? He, that he told me later. Oh, okay, 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 sorry, I'm jumping so, in. Hey, so what happened is, so Danny Schwartz comes in and he says, "With who, who are we doing? He says, doesn't have to be, he says, the rabbi is organizing in Los Angeles. Maybe we got someone from outside of Los Angeles. Who do who do we do in business with or what? <laughs> and so he tells them that there's a guy, Don Sofa, in Turnberry in Florida. So uh, after Danny told him that, Frank said, let's get him on the line. <laughs> it gets on the line, Don Sofa. And he tells Don Sofa, I'm getting involved we're, we're going to build a Simon Wiesenthal Center here in Los Angeles. And I know that you're a very generous man. I hear from Danny. And I want you to know I'm sending down my rabbi, <clears throat> Rabbi Heyer. He's going to come down and see you in a couple of weeks. And I'd sure appreciate it if you'd be generous. I, I, we just couldn't believe it. So what happened was that when I went to, first of all, I had to find out who's Don Sofa in Turnberry Isle. How did he get there? When I went down there, I thought to myself that Sofa's going to think that we put him up to and that it, you know, it may not be so good. It may be angry because it's going to cost him whatever it is. But as soon as I come into Don Sofa, he laughs, smile on his face, and Don Sofa says to me, he says, Rabbi, how can I help you? He says, don't be ashamed. He said, tell me exactly what you need. How much money? What do you need? And I, I couldn't, you know, I'd never seen a situation like this. So anyway, he says to me, don't worry. I'll never forget. He says, whatever I'm going to give you is nothing 
to what I made out of the idea. I've been on the golf course all week telling people, guess who called me to solicit me to a Jewish charity? <laughs> Frank Sinatra. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and that was Frank Sinatra's introduction to the Stein Wiesenthal Center, and then he told me why. Okay. He said, in the entertainment business, most of the time, we create heroes from fiction. He says, Simon Wiesenthal, he's the real McCoy. And it's not often that I have a chance, you know, I've always thought of him standing out there all by himself looking for these, he used the yeah. curse word, yeah. Nazis. And he said, and he said, you know, he's the real McCoy. So whatever I can do. And, you know, Simon, no idea. Absolutely no idea that even the greatest stars knew of him. He was completely, you know, when I told him the story, he says, Frank Sinatra, <laughs> how, how he know me? <laughs> he, he Did they eventually get to meet? Oh, of course. Oh, yeah, that's great. Many times, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's a photo over there. That's great. Many times. And then Frank became a member of the board, and then Frank chaired that dinner. That's amazing. The, uh, you know, at the Kennedy Center. Well, that was the, happened to be the premiere of your first with, film, with right? Elizabeth Taylor, and Frank was worried. And Frank called me and said, you don't know Elizabeth. We're gonna, you know, it's a lousy date, middle of the winter, weather's terrible in Washington. <laughs> she has a habit of showing up late. So I can tell her, or you can tell her. And so she, but then she had narrated genocide for yes. us. So I told it to her, I said, Frank is chairing it. He's very concerned about the weather. And he really appreciated it. He's going to start at 8 o'clock no matter what. And uh, Elizabeth Taylor was there at 7.30. Wow. And uh, then Frank whispered to me, there's a picture. I whispered to him. I said, he said, it's her earliest arrival. <laughs> well, let's pause for a second here to talk about, you know, I've tried to go back <clears throat> and read articles from the archives. So sure. as these events were happening, it's been interesting to read. And one of the things that I was in some respects surprised about, in other respects not, is that it seems like at the start particularly, but even over the years, there has been some resistance to your work, even within the Jewish community. Well, it, it, yeah, in the beginning there was. I'm yeah. happy to report for the last many years, the there federal, hasn't federation been. leadership is totally behind totally us. Totally behind. Yeah, um, but in the beginning, they wanted to have control. You know, a guy comes into a community, a stranger, and they say, he doesn't even ask us, so I said as follows, we're not asking you for money. If we would ask the Federation for money, they would have had a right to say, you know what, we're responsible there. We gotta know what's going on and we have to, but we said, we, could, we are responsible and raise the funds ourselves. Right. And uh, you know, but in the end, uh, some of the Federation's biggest leaders are the biggest supporters of the Wiesnall. That's great. The Museum of Tolerance you mentioned opened in 1993. Right. Why did you feel that that, on top of the Wiesenthal Center, was necessary, and what was the mission? Because we didn't want to preach or speak to the Jewish community only. There are only 14 million Jews in the world. Jews need, need friends. We have to speak to the world. That's one reason. But forget about the marketing reason. The more important reason is there were other tragedies committed against non-Jews. Um, we can't set ourselves up as if the Jewish 
people want to speak only and exclusively about only tragedies that occurred to Jews. Mm -hmm. That's a mistake. You can't, you're not going to build friends. We all live together in the world. Here, Frank Sinatra was Italian and he came to help Jews. Jews have to be concerned that we see that anti-Semitism didn't die with Hitler in the bunker. Bigotry didn't die with him. Look, there was Biafra, Rwanda, Look at all the genocides. There, even before the Holocaust, there was the Armenian genocide. If we are silent about all these, we will never be able to build that coalition of the good because the coalition of the good can only be Jews. Jews are a very small people. By the way, Simon Wiesendahl used to say we're small because we were the first victims of pogroms and inquisitions and the Holocaust and Black Plague, etc. But the Museum of Tolerance said Look, we're all in this together. Hitler, there's no doubt about certain facts. I often say when I speak to Latinos and to African Americans, you should know one thing. If Hitler would have won the Second World War and he would have conquered England and then he would have set his sight on America, he would have built concentration camps for Latinos and African Americans because he had, that had the same philosophy. He believed that only the pure Aryan race is the only legitimate race. All the others are untermenschen, subhuman. And that's, that was the kernel of the idea for the Museum of Tolerance. And it's really been a, a, a tremendous success from the start. How many visitors per year would you say it's now attracting? 350,000. 95% of all of our visitors are non-Jews. Wow. 95%. Wow, wow, wow. And in addition to that, We've trained more than 200,000 frontline professionals, police from, the, from on the East Coast, in the Midwest, in, here, of course, at our headquarters in LA. Not only Americans, China sent uh, us for training here, uh, Russia, uh, France, uh, people from all over the world uh, come now to the Museum of Tolerance. And the great thing is also that we have visitors, you, you know, judges now assign uh, juvenile delinquents come here, people who are, have to do uh, public service because they were charged with something, come to the Museum of Tolerance. And it, it, the Museum of Tolerance wants to build a coalition of responsible human beings who are not bigoted, who understand that you know that uh, bigotry and hate is the worst enemy, that it may start with the Jews, but it doesn't stop with the Jews, and uh, you know, and therefore, it's we're proud that the NAACP has its annual event here every year at the Museum of Tolerance, and many other coalitions. Wow. Now, look, we, we 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 can have disagreements amongst people on different issues. We may feel a little stronger than Israel than other people may feel, but. The Museum of Tolerance message is one of inclusion, tolerance, th that we have to speak out for human dignity. And Simon Wiesenthal used to say that freedom is not a gift from heaven. It's something you have to fight for each and every day. And he's right. Mm -hmm. Look, if we, if we don't protect our freedoms here in America. Look, people, you know, I, I'm the head of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and people ask me this question every day. Do you think it could happen here in America? Of course it can. We, people forget that Germany 
before the First World War and before then, Germany was the seat of culture, period. The greatest uh, philosophers, musicians, and overnight, their government was replaced and a tyrant took over and we have the original Hitler letter. This is the, the most important document housed in the Museum of Tolerance is Hitler's first anti-Semitic written letter written five years before Mein Kampf where he lays out his plan that the ultimate aim is to get rid of the Jews altogether. So we, we, we say to ourselves that you have to watch that you can't be insulated and say America is a democracy. It'll never happen here. The Weimar Republic could say Germany is a cultured nation. It can never happen right. here, but it happened. Well, not to get too involved in the current political situation, but I just want to ask you one question because it seems to be a matter of tolerance. Has the Museum of Tolerance taken a position on the argument of one of the candidates that all Muslims should not be allowed into the United There's States? There's no such thing as all. It's any anyone proposing, whether yeah. you're on the left or you're on the right, because, you know, the left also, for example, the Museum of Tolerance is very anti the BDS movement. The BDS movement wants to boycott, sanction, and basically do against the state of Israel because they call Israel an apartheid state. Oh, if every country would only, act, would only have a system of free government where every day there are basically a, almost a dozen Arab MKs who every day in the Knesset, in Israel's Knesset, get up in the morning and speak from the microphone and say publicly, Netanyahu is a fascist and nobody does anything because it's a democracy. And, you know, to call Israel an apartheid state would be like calling America an apartheid state. And so we are against that. We are against exclusion of any race, Muslims, Christians, Jews, African-Americans, ethnic groups, the Museum of Tolerance, as one size fits all. Right. Our, 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 our philosophy is we don't say, oh no, we're only in favor of human dignity for Jews. Right. Comes to others, we're not in favor of human dignity. That would discredit the Museum of Tolerance. And so when you see something... We're against it. That's wrong, though. We speak out. You speak out through your publications. Yeah, and we're your, against it, right. right. Now, people clarify what they mean. You know, this one says like this, this one says like that. But extremism... Uh, I'm a believer of, you know, Maimonides had the golden rule, but people misunderstand Maimonides' rule. See, the golden rule doesn't mean you're on the 50-yard line. Of course, the 50-yard line would then mean gutless wonders, I mean you haven't got an opinion on anything. Right, right, right. What Maimonides said is, on every issue, try not to be on top of the the ultimate extreme of that issue. Right. In other words... You, you can be a Republican and you can be a Democrat, right. but avoid the ultimate extremes because when you get to the top of that extreme, you almost, whether it's on the left or the right, you, you enter the halls of bigotry. So just to pin you down on this right. one thing, though, about Trump, though. Is well, well tr Trump, I, I, if you ask me, do I agree that all, all Arab? No, no, I do not. If you ask me, on the other hand, do I agree with other candidates? For example, I, I, I don't want to get into politics, right, but right. if you think I agree with everything Sanders says, right. absolutely not. <laughs> right. you, you're not. You know, 
You don't get bonus but points let, for let just being a Jewish this way. candidate. Yeah. The world needs more Churchills than it needs Chamberlains. Right, right. If you don't have Churchills in the world, you have nobody willing to stand up to evil. Right. We need to remember one thing, whether we like it or not, here's a man who saved Western civilization. And, you know, because nobody else had the guts. It's clear that FDR had to be dragged into the Second World War by a greater man right. called Winston Churchill, who basically said, you can't let Hitler get away with it. Right. Because if you, you, give, you let him get away with it, it'll take over the whole world. So who of these people that are being weighed this evening in Iowa, in terms of their... There's no Churchills. No, there's, I was going to say, there's no Churchills. But is there somebody who's a demonstration I wanna, of tolerance? I, I never... The Museum of Tolerance and the Simon Wiesel Center does not endorse <laughs> any political candidates. I want okay. to give you a little history. Yeah, yeah. When Jesse Jackson ran for president... Right. I remember he made the comment, Heimitown? Yes. I was one of the first to criticize them. Yes. So he complained, because it was in the middle of a political campaign, that the Simon Wiesnall Center was getting involved in, in a presidential campaign. And he, he complained to the federal elections campaign. So I'm not going to endorse candidates right. publicly, right. but I'm going to tell you the following. Yeah. Extremism on the left and on the right is not good. Mm-hmm. What Maimonides was saying is not, you shouldn't, he has the golden rule, which is to avoid the extremes. And people therefore say, oh, what is he saying? Stay on the 50-yard line. No, that's a gutless wonder. (laughs) He's saying, you know, on the seesaw, don't go all the way to the extreme. (laughs) So be clever. Gotcha, gotcha. One of the amazing things is that there are offshoots, aren't there now, all over the country, all over the world, of both the Wiesendorf Center and the Museum of Tolerance, right? Well, we have a museum. We have now in New York. We have a facility, and we're building our biggest facility ever in the center of Jerusalem, because we believe that the message of tolerance there, and we have the support of Shimon Peres, the support of the Prime Minister, of the new President of Israel, and the person who loves our project is the Mayor of Jerusalem, near Bakat. And we have everybody's support that in the center of Jerusalem, we're building a $200 million facility. That's something you've been working on or many, thinking about many for years. decades, right? Many, many years. And uh, it'll, 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 it'll be a place of inclusion and a place that will be, uh, you know, let's put it this way. If you ask me, would ISIS be welcome there? No. <laughs> would, the, would the crazies of the world, the extremists? No. Right. But most people right. who have brains and have a conscience, well, on the left and the right, they'll all love that place. Right. There was initially some resistance from some circles to this being built in Israel. I guess one of the reasons was that one of the resistors, in a sense, was Yad Vashem, because they say we've already covered the... We're not dealing with so the Holocaust. So now the compromise was, you're not going to deal with the Holocaust, no, right? No, well, well we're not, we're not, it's not a Holocaust museum. Right. And of course, we're going to, if you're telling the story of people on the Exodus, or you're telling, and they happen to come from Europe, we're not going to say that we're not going to mention the names. Right. You know what I mean? We right. are going to, but we're not going to, it's not, here we have a Holocaust museum. Right. It tells the story of what happened from 19... Uh, 33 until 1945. In Israel, there'll be no such section. So basically, it's a it's a slightly different mission there. Oh, it's totally different. We're yeah. dealing. It has a people's journey, two major sections: people's journey and the social laboratory. And the main issue of the Museum of Tolerance in Jerusalem, what are the is? It's not a museum about the past. It's a museum about today and tomorrow. It's a museum that the issues of terrorism, 
the issues of, of the have-nots, the issues of immigration. All these things will be discussed because it will be a very current museum. Sure. But it'll be based on the experience of the Jewish people. You know, Simon Wiesenthal, as I said to you before, he, in his speech, when he opened the Museum of, Tol- the museum of Tolerance here, he, he said in his speech the following, that the British Isles, at the time of when there were one million people living in the British Isles, there were four million Jews in the world 2,000 years ago. Today, there are more than 60 million people living in the British Isles, and there are 14 million Jews. So why didn't the Jews catch up? And he answered, pogroms, inquisitions, holocaust, black plague. And so we are building a museum of tolerance in Jerusalem to search for that broad coalition of the good that is necessary to sustain our world. The only other source of, I guess, perhaps delay on this was that the bones. The bones. And let's just, to clap for people that are listening, correct me if any of this is wrong, but basically on the proposed site of the museum, an old Muslim cemetery was found underneath a parking lot. And so it went to the Israeli Supreme Court after some Arabs and Orthodox Jews formed a coalition and sued to stop the project. But the Israeli Supreme Court sided with you guys because the parking lot was already there. So it's not like it was the first time something was being built over that. Is that well, all correct? Yes. But you need to add the following. The Israeli Supreme Court's decision was unanimous. Not one justice uh, thought differently. And the main reasons were that on the site, uh, uh, we we found evidence that two things. That they say was part of an ancient cemetery. But on that cemetery, they built the Palace Hotel... The, the Supreme Muslim Council built the Palace Hotel. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, they filed with the British in 1946 plans to build a commercial center and a bank on the exact same site. So it didn't, didn't dissuade them. So the court basically said, come on, you can't have it six ways. It would have been good enough for a bank and a commercial center but not good enough for a museum of tolerance. Did they know at that time that there were bones under there, though? That's Well, of course they, they knew. <laughs> They're <laughs> now, the ones who said that it's there for hundreds of years. Right, right, right. Now, this this is a Frank Gehry yeah. design no. building? No, no. Frank Gehry is no longer the architect okay. because we couldn't afford it. <laughs> we, uh, you know, this has become, so it's Hewton design. I this see the this building. design over here um, on the there side. There, you see, me. that's the wall of Astoria. That's beautiful. Over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a block, blocks away. It'll have an amphitheater for a thousand, a children's museum, an adult museum. It will have, a, uh, it, it, in, in addition to that, an international conference center where non-Jews and others can hold conferences. Wow. And it's in the center of Jerusalem, uh, blocks walking distance from where anyone will stay in Jerusalem. Just walking this. How often do you imagine you'll be going over there to... Well, I'll have to go over there, you know, to make sure that... But I'm not going to... This is the, you know... You're this still is where based we start. here. I'll be based in L.A., but I will... If you ask me during the year, will I be there when right. it's open? Of course. Well, I imagine you go to Israel probably quite a lot anyway. Yeah, I go three, four times a year. Very yeah, nice. Yeah. And also, just to clarify one thing, I've seen figures ranging from... 100 million to 250 it, million. What did no, it end up coming in it'll at? Be, it'll be $200 million. $200 million. Yeah. Okay. $200 million of which we've raised uh, 92% of the capital campaign. 
we're now working, we're gonna, when we complete the capital campaign, within the $200 million is a $63 million endowment. That's wow. in, in the That's two million. That's great. That's right. great. Right. So today, who are your biggest Hollywood supporters? Oh, we have all the years, let me tell you, our trustees. We have on our board of trustees, first of all, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who chairs the International Leadership Council, has done a phenomenal job for us. A great friend, Ron Meyer. Jeffrey and Ron are members of the board. They've been there for, you know, for many, many years, and they are phenomenal. Uh, we are, had the privilege of honoring Ted Sarandos and Brett Ratner's today, a member of our board, a young, the younger generation, and Brett is uh, you know, going to be very, very helpful to us. Uh, James Packett has just joined our board, and uh, we've had, we also have uh, Sid Scheinberg is a member of our board, uh, Jonathan Dolgen, the member of our board of trustees, uh, Mary Hart and Bert Sugarman. Mary and Bert are unbelievable, helpful in the Museum of Talent Jerusalem and uh, come to all the meetings. Wow. And I have in my book, I have a great story about Mary Hart and Bert and a Hasidic Rebbe. You should read it. <laughs> People, have, that's your tease. You got to go buy the book, which is now available on Amazon. Yes. That's great. Now, one other thing that we obviously have to talk a lot about here is the fact that among the many yarmulkes that you wear is the Mariah Films side of things. Now, can you explain, first of all, how did the idea of filmmaking within the Wiesenthal Center ever originate? I'll tell you the truth. Okay. We had 18 slide projectors when we were opening the old Simon Wiesenthal Museum in 1977. When we were opening, so it's 77, going into 78, and we have these, at that time, they said, let's do a slideshow. And they had about 20, 18 or 20 slide projectors, and we had purchased the slide projectors and the, the, the exhibit. And somebody brought in a visitor one day and I didn't know the names of the people. Many people came, you know, and I, I didn't know. And when this uh, lady was saying, you know, why be a slave to all these 18 slide projectors? She was trying to give us advice. And I was saying to myself, well, what do you mean? But every, it seems to be everyone's using slide projectors. Right. What is she talking about? <laughs> and then I didn't know who the lady is. And then they introduced her that she's fake Canaan. And she's the president of the Academy of Ocean Pictures, Arts and Science. I right. almost fell off my seat. Right. And she's explaining to me, it's a good idea. What you should do, Rabbi, is don't be a slave to these projectors. Make a film on the Holocaust. And the film, you could do whatever you want. You'll be able to put it on a thing, and you have only one, and your wear and tear is going to be saved. And I said to myself, you know what? I don't know what I'm doing. This lady is 100% right. And so... We, that was born the idea we should do a film. And originally we turned to Saul Bass, who wasn't available, went to Arnold Schwartzman. Arnold is somebody that was a protege of Saul. Yes. Right? Yeah. And the next thing, so we have this film, and then who can we get? So someone came up with Austin Wells as the male voice. Of course, Austin Wells, one of the greatest actors of all time. <laughs> and then I said, why don't we get Elizabeth Taylor to be the storyteller of the Holocaust stories? So I said, how are you going to get her? I said, well, I don't know her at all, but the only way is through her husband. I do know her husband well. We worked on the Statue of Limitations. This is Senator John Wayne. Yes. 
So I contacted John Warner, asked him for a favor. I said, look, when we have a script, we'd like to send it. And he said, look, we have a strict, although we have a strict division of labor, I look after the United States Senate, and she looks after the entertainment. Mm -hmm. What I can do from you, Rabbi, you send me that script when it's ready, and I'll put it on our night table. <laughs> and then she called me right. for lunch at the Polo Lounge, which I never heard of. I'm not embarrassed to say I never heard where it is. And I met her there. She loved the idea. And as you read the book, you see that she asked me to give her a ride to the dentist. And I didn't park my car. I had, my car was blocks away. I ran, mm -hmm. get all the dirty stuff out and put it in the back. I drove her there. Anyway, she recorded for us in London and, uh, when she was doing a film. Mm -hmm. And I went there. And uh, that's when uh, she recorded. And uh, unbelievable. We had Frank, Frank. By then, Frank was a member of the board, of course. And Frank chaired the opening at the Kennedy Center. The premiere of Genesis, premiere of Genesis movie, Genocide. which became Genocide. Genocide. Yeah. And then when the Academy made the announcements, I, it was... Well, let's clarify what these announcements were. The nomination that the, that the film uh, had been nominated for an Academy Award, we, we just I couldn't, couldn't believe it. I mean, it was to me like... I, I kept saying, you see, that my grandmother was a smart lady. It had to be my share. How did that happen? You know. So what? what you know. And then we went to the you know uh, to the Academy Awards, and uh, one of the greatest stories was when when we won, and uh, I, I can't tell you how nervous I was that night. Thinking to myself, this is like, it's an honor to be nominated, but I don't. I don't know anyone that doesn't want to win. And so, of course, we wanted to be the ones selected. And when I heard my name, I, I, it was like, you know, something that occurs in life that is just unbelievable. You had a chance to speak to hundreds of millions of people uh, for, for, to give a little bit of a message of why we made the film. And then to get a call for my mother, that was everything. My mother... You know, in the East Side, if you were poor, there were people who were richer in the middle class, and there were other ladies. And this lady never said hello. They davened in the same shul, and the Litovitska shul. And the lady never said hello to my mother because, you know, my mother it was not from the rich people. And when I won the Academy Award, uh, this lady met my mother in the park, and the next day, and this lady said to my mother, Razel Haya. The Holy Side is talking about you. We are so proud of your son, the first rabbi to win an Academy Award. And to me, that was like the most touching story because my mother had probably been trying to say hello to this lady for 25 years and never had the opportunity. And now this lady came over to her. She must have felt 10 feet tall. Mm -hmm. That's great. <clears throat> Quick follow-up about Elizabeth Taylor. I heard something about a sandwich. Yeah. I drove her to the wrong studio. We this was in London? Or? Yeah. yeah. In London, she stayed at the Savoy. Yeah. And I'm saying to myself, I don't know how long a recording takes. I've never done this before. So I said, it could take the whole day or half an hour or half a day. And I can't eat there because I don't eat kosher. So I went first with the car to Bloom's, picked up for myself two salt beef sandwiches. I said, I have it here on the side. And takes long. Elizabeth will eat lunch over there and whatever in the canteen or whatever she wants to eat and I'll eat my sandwiches. 
Now I take it to the wrong studio, 45 minutes out of London, and I could see when I came down to tell her that it was the wrong studio, that she was not a happy camper. And I said to myself, here goes the first film. <laughs> We're supposed to have her to be narrating. And as the, the car is driving off, the, the, the salt beef sandwiches were soggy and they went through the paper bag and the smell was a delicious smell. Anyone's ever have salt beef, London salt beef? <laughs> no. So she said to me, Rabbi, what smells so good? And I said, Elizabeth, it's my kosher salt beef sandwiches. So she says to me, aren't you going to share the wealth? <laughs> and what happened was she ate one and a half sandwich left me a half <laughs> by the time but it was well worth it right, she did kept a, her great, happy. a great yeah. a great narration and right. it won the academy award <laughs> i guess the next year you were invited to join the academy right yeah uh, fake candidate they see there oh uh, yeah the, the invitation over yeah. there yeah. so i believe you were the first and probably only ever rabbi in the academy i think so i someone once said i don't know the rules i didn't look into whether there are non-Jewish pastors or priests. Yes. But someone, it's certainly, the, yes, that's what they told. How does it feel to be the Jackie Robinson of rabbis? Well, <laughs> let me, let me, let me, well, it gave me an outfit, though. The fact that a person with a yarmulke could get up at the Academy Awards, it, it, was, a, it was a thrill. You also became more in demand as a consultant on other projects that were not necessarily in-house. So I just have to ask, first, Warren Remembrance, the miniseries, but then Schindler's List as well. What did yeah. that entail what, what well, were your no, I Stephen and uh, kindly and, uh, and uh, Stephen and his mother and his wife uh, we went to Paris and from Paris we went to he invited me to watch the filming as he was filming Schindler's List it was quite a remarkable to see to see this and to see the actors there hundreds of actors got scared because there were, many were wearing Nazi uniforms and, um, you know, I knew then that it would be an epic film without having read the whole script just by seeing that, that day or two of filming that we watched. And then when the film was ready, they asked me, I looked over the whole, the whole film and before it came out and I noticed that there were two things that could uh, raise eyebrows. One was... In 1940 and 41, you had mainly Ashkenazi Jews. So he had someone making Kiddush in the modern Hebrew that is used today. And somebody would say, you look, that's not the way it was. So I said, and, but he had already shot it. So the only thing you could do is do a voiceover. Yeah. And so uh, I said, I, I think I could get somebody has an authentic Ashkenazi who was there, who was a Holocaust survivor, and let's see. So on Friday night, a man showed up to Davin here in the yeshiva. I went over to him and I said, I'd like you to make Kiddush now for me, see if it sounds good. He made Kiddush and I said, oh, that's the right voice. <laughs> and he was hired and he, read, he made the Kiddush and they took out the other one and he said to me, I asked this, uh, his name was Emil. I said, Emil, how does it feel to make Kiddush and Schindler's List in the beginning of the film? He said, my Kiddush was heard by more people than heard Moses speak at Mount Sinai. 
That's great. Yeah. And uh, and what was the second change? And the second change was he had a woman rabbi that was like officiating in the camps. And there were no women rabbis in, again in 1940s. So I said the only way to do that, there was a Hasidic Rebbe. In the history of Hasidism, there was a famous Levi Yitzchok Mibaditshuva was his name. And this Levi Yitzchok, he always saw good in people. So one day he saw someone, a Jew, going to work on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. So instead of admonishing the person, he looked up at heaven and he said, God, could you imagine the great needs of this man's family that even on Yom Kippur he's going to work? Please look kindly on the fact that he's doing it for the sake of his family. So I said this to Stephen and to Branko Lustig, is we should insert that little intro. It says, God, I know this is not perfect, but under these circumstances, I know you will understand. Something like that. And that's what they did. Wow. That's and great. so in, in the performing of the wedding at, in the camps. Yeah. And yeah. the first screening ever of Schindler's List to the family was at the Museum of Tolerance. When you say to the family, you mean the family? Stephen. For his family. Yeah, Stephen did not want to watch it when his family watched it, but he put the film here. And... Clint Eastwood was invited, and there were other about 50, 60 close friends. Wow. It was the first public screening wow. before anyone saw it. It was at the Museum of Time. And you were there that night? Yes. How did it go over? It was phenomenal. Wow. Absolutely phenomenal. Even though you had already made Genocide, mm-hmm. had you made any other films yet prior to 1995? Well, yes, we made Echoes That Remain and Liberation. These were done by Arnold Schwartzman together with me. And uh, so we had... Uh, Echoes That Remain, Liberation, and then 1995, we started Mariah Films. We named it Mariah because that was the entrance of the Jewish people into world history. Uh, Mount Mariah, that's where Abraham had the covenant with God. So we called it Mariah Films because it would tell the continuing story of the Jewish people, epic events of the 20th and 21st centuries. And uh, of course, thanks to Jeffrey, uh, who Jeffrey, Jeff, Jeffrey and Ron get us all our narrators. They are the ones who told us to have a studio here, and uh, I give them a lot of credit. You know. And when you mention narrators, I just have to tell our listeners these narrators of your films have included, in addition to Orson Welles and Elizabeth Taylor, Michael Douglas, Christoph Waltz, Ben Kingsley, Dustin Hoffman, Sandra Bullock, and many others. And I understand nobody gets compensation for doing that. Every film was done gratis. By these, uh, by these fantastic stars, wow. who uh, and Christoph Waltz and uh, Sir Ben Kingsley, who loved Simon, and uh, Michael Douglas. Amazing. You know, Michael uh, is always here for the center. That's terrific. What staff and facilities comprise Mariah? You've shown me, but for our listeners, can you talk about? It has a staff of seven full-time people, and uh, that includes researchers. And this is an active right now. We're working very hard on the film on uh, David Ben-Gurion because of upcoming anniversaries. Yes. And uh, it's a great story to tell. And uh, there's a lot, uh, you know, that people don't know about David Ben-Gurion. But the facilities themselves are very impressive and very rare for an independent organization. You said that Jeffrey Katzenberg was a big impetus for you doing this. Can you share? Well, Jeffrey and Ron, yes. Yeah. Jeffrey, they told me, listen, if you're going to do this regularly... It would be silly 
to go outside, first of all, you'll be spending whatever money you're going to spend now to create the studio. It'll be less to you. In, you'll, be more, you'll save more by doing it this way than by paying retail on every individual film. It's, so knowing they're the experts, we took their advice. We raised the money from donations from our major donors. How much would you say the whole facility? All oh, it cost a nice few million, yeah. two and a half, uh, three million yeah. dollars. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. we furnished it. And now we have our own recording studio and editing studio here, right in the building. And we keep all of the, we have a, millions of feet of film. For example, when we did, uh, you know, In Search of Peace, the, which is the history of Israel, we have a lot of these speeches from all the, all the Israeli leaders there. So we, we store them and therefore we use the footage right. again. We may have to apply sometimes for relicensing, but we have the material in hand. It's a serious endeavor. And it's one of the only, to my knowledge, of a Jewish organization in the world that regularly produces films. That doesn't, you know, we're now, this will be the 15th film. Wow. We're going to convert. We're also taking into consideration the high school and elementary schools and universities. They have a problem because if a film is an hour and a half, sometimes their period yeah. doesn't allow for that. So what we're doing, many of our films will be edited. Some of them can be cut into sections. Will be edited so that it will be available to the student universe all over the world. And we're also proud that the United States State Department gave five million dollars to this to to the Mariah to translate some of our films in foreign languages. That's terrific. Yeah. And uh, so that they're available in Hungary and in uh, Austria and in very various countries all over the world in That's the great. in the other languages. So. We uh, we're very proud of that, and uh, you know, and we're going to continue. Why? Why people ask me why Mariah Films? Because you have to understand. The, first, let me address it as a Jew, as a Jew, someone who has spent his time in Jewish education and leadership. Ninety-nine percent of Jewish kids do not receive a full Jewish education. How are they going to know their own history? Films have a great advantage. Wherever you are, at a community college, at home, you're in a business, you have the ability to catch up on Jewish history. As long, and so we created a whole library of films that will give that person the knowledge that they didn't get because, let's say, they were out of school. That's for Jews. Right. For non-Jews, as I said many, many times, 14 million Jews need friends. And therefore creating a library that introduces to the non-Jewish community the epic events of the 20th and 21st century is of critical importance to toward building those coalitions of the good. And each one of these, what would you say the average cost is to you guys to make one of them? A million dollars. And you, you, you raise money each time you want to make a yes, film? Yes, that's what we do. We and raise so the money. People that want to support your filmmaking endeavors should donate to the Wiesenthal Center or to Mariah Films. To Mariah Films yes. separately. Yes, and they and they get well. You see, we have a credit of the donors before the film comes. And most of the donors' minimum gift is a hundred thousand dollars wow. payable over five years. Wow! And in order to get on that scroll, that's how we fund all of our films. Amazing. And uh, we're we're very proud of what Mariah's done. And at one thing, I must say. We had one occasion on the long way home 
which was your second one to win an Oscar. Yes. In The Long Way Home, I never imagined that Radio City Music Hall would be packed. And we had about close to 5,000 people in Radio City Music Hall. We invited high schools and elementary schools and their parents. They came to a screening there, and it was really a sight to behold. Unbelievable. Now, your personal role on each of these, is, does it vary? Are you more involved with some than others? What I like to do yeah. is, first of all, have a creative uh, you know, place. So I'm very involved. Uh, the director, you know, we get the script, and before we go into it, we have to make sure that all the elements are in the script. I'm a great believer in drama. I think it's very important to tell a story. And I'm less, I'm less a fan of lengthy historical descriptions of events because I say to myself, who is your audience? If you want to move young people, you want to give them an understanding, you want to move them. It's hard to move them just with a series of facts. <clears throat> you know, this happened, then we had this, and the unemployment was at 20% and that. Those are great. But that's not going to move anybody. Right. So I want to make sure that we have the right... I'm not saying you just tell stories. That's not enough. But you, a film that is only aimed at the head, but not at the heart, is a big mistake. Mm -hmm. Because the heart has a lot to say with what direction the head's going. That makes sense. So a big part of what you're doing is honing the focus of the script and then the cut as it goes along? Right. And therefore, to make sure that the, the script has that balance of stories as well as, crea as well as the historical aspect of it, because if it doesn't, you also have a tendency to lose young people. And, uh, and you know, like, for example, when you do a film about Theodore Herzl, <laughs> it's important to have told the story that Herzl, when he was at his lowest ebb, and nothing was going right for him, and the guy was about to toss in the towel. Right. There's a knock on his door, and there's this Reverend Hexler, Hechler, and this Reverend, he's sitting there with maps. And Herzl says to him, oh my God, what? And he says, I want to show you the maps that you were meant to be who you are in the Bible. And Herzl says to himself, you got to be crazy. What, what do I let this guy in for? And the guy comes in, and all of a sudden, he, t he says, Herzl asked him, where do you work now? He said, I'm at the British Embassy. So what are you doing there? He says, well, I teach the children of the ambassadors and others. He says, you mean you're a teacher? He says, who else have you taught? He said, well, I'm personal friends. I've taught all of the Kaiser's children, the German Kaiser. And, and he says, you have? He says, I've been trying to get an appointment with the Kaiser about Palestine. Do you think you can get me in? And the Reverend Hackler said, of course I can they, and, he, and that's how he got in to see. And as a result of that, he also met the Pope. Wow. <laughs> and that changed the whole dynamics. Oh, my goodness. So if you don't have a story like that into the thing, right. you're missing, you know, you, you know what am I getting right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I believe that your closest collaborator in, at Mariah Films is Richard Trank. And right. so I want to ask you, how did you come to know him and what's his role at the company? Well, Rick first came in here as a young person. He was helping in the uh, original films uh, not you know we have after genocide we had uh, echoes that remain and liberation mm -hmm. and Rick was 
he, he's a tremendous asset. He's a very big talent. I saw right away that he's going to have, he's going to be a director. How did he come here? What, what he, brought him? He came and, you know, he was attracted to the fact that Simon Wiesendahl, his parents, uh, one of his parents was survivors. Uh-huh. And they had a, an affinity. Rick is multi-talented. He's smart and uh, knows um, he believe, he's very you know, committed also to uh, the Jewish people, understands that we have an obligation to try to uh, tell our story. And he was just, a, you know, uh, rather than take outside directors, Arnold was great. Mm-hmm. But Arnold works on other things or had other, he was a graphic designer. We wanted an in-house person that would be here all the time and that would also service the museum because the museum has a lot of needs regarding films yeah. and other. So he was the perfect person and he's been great. We've done uh, so many films together and uh, he's very committed, very dedicated and talented. Terrific. And, uh, you know, knows, knows, knows the business. Yeah. The Long Way Home, which, which you mentioned, this was 1997 film about the post-war suffering of the survivors of the Holocaust. Why did you decide to make that one? And uh, did you imagine that it would go over as well as it did? Oh, we, first of all, <clears throat> we wanted to tell, most people think, after the Holocaust was over, everything was hunky-dory for Jews <laughs> and the survivors. And that's wrong. They were placed in DP camps after the humiliation they suffered under the Nazis. There was no, no one welcomed them. Here was the situation. Where were they going to go back to? Go back to the homes that were destroyed in Poland and Lithuania. They had no place to go. They were unwelcome. Remember, I'm not accusing, or be very careful here, I'm not generalizing about the Poles or about the Lithuanians, but it is an indisputable fact that elements amongst them served the Nazi cause. And so the survivors who lost their families, they weren't going back to their shtetls. So in Israel, there was no Israel. Uh, the British had the white, the, uh, white paper. They weren't going to take them in. And so where should they go? So at the moment, they said, let's put them in the same places, places like Dachau and other areas. We'll just make it that's more comfortable for them. And it was miserable for them. The Jews, they said, we want out of here. We want a life. We want a country. We want a place. And remember, the immigration laws, even though after the war they changed, uh, the State Department immigration laws was full of anti-Semitism during the Second World War, discriminated against Jews. And um, it was very hard to get into this country. So the situation, nobody told that story. What happened in 1945 to 1948? And we, we decided that that would be the long way home. Why the long way home? It's interesting. When the Jews got out of Egypt in the Exodus, there was the long way home. Why? God told them in the book of Exodus, it says, I'm not taking you home. I'm not taking you into the promised land through the shortcut. I'm taking you in the long way through the wilderness. So the long way home, in a way, was a reincarnation of, of the other major exodus. Yeah. That was also the long way home. Right. And uh, it tells the story of how many obstacles they had to overcome. Who wants them? Who is going to take them in? Uh, Bevan is now in charge in England, and he doesn't want to take anybody into Palestine. And, you know, Churchill is, at, uh, is out, and Bevan is in charge. 
So how are you going to do this? And so this is that magnificent story of triumph. And, you know, uh, a, a, um, one of my heroes, as far as a Jewish great thinker, was Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik. And Rabbi Soloveitchik had an interesting take. He asked the question, he was a, a genius, and especially in secular knowledge, a brilliant person, one of the great thinkers. So he said, what's the most important um, thing that the Jewish people thought man, taught mankind? What would you say? So he says, someone says this, they say this commandment, that commandment. And he said, the commandment, he said, that God, this was not the world, the first world that God created. In Jewish tradition, it says that God had many universes and worlds before he created this one. But he said, it's interesting that God had created other worlds and he was still able to say of the new creation, behold, it is very good. <laughs> so he said as follows, the great thing about the Jewish people is, is that Auschwitz and Treblinka did not take from them the ability to say, the future is going to be very good. The Jews are an optimistic people. And even out of Auschwitz, they said, we, are, we will make it and times will be better. And he, aboard the Exodus, they had a newspaper. And what did they name their newspaper? They named their newspaper Baderech, we're on the way. <laughs> so he says, look, who was on this ship? Survivors of the Exodus, they got nothing. You have any brothers and sisters? Killed. Parents murdered, and you're on the way. Right. Optimism yeah. is the secret weapon of the Jewish people. Amazing. So, not at all to equate the importance of what I'm about to ask you with the importance of the content of the film. Right. But you did get another call, I guess, one morning saying, "Rabbi, you are an Oscar nominee again." We could not never. We never believe it. And of course, uh, you know, um, we. Um, I said to myself that this is, you know, reliving a fantasy. And we went the second time. And if you asked me. 16 years later, right? Something yes. like that, yeah. And if you asked me, did I think we would win? No. <laughs> I thought for sure. And most people would say, you know what? They've already had their Oscar. Right. Forget about right. it. And when they said that we won, you know, of course, Morgan Freeman and our director, Mark Jonathan Harris, they did a fabulous job. But we don't believe it, you know, that that uh, such a thing uh, could have occurred a second time. And uh, it, it was a thrill. And one of the funny things was, uh, I, don't, I have to remember when it was the first or the second time with, uh, with uh, uh, Walter Matthau yeah. and, and Jack, uh, Jack Lemon. So I come backstage, we're mm -hmm. holding the Oscar. And uh, Jack Lemon uh, said to Walter Matthau, he said, they change, see, they changed the rules. He said, once upon a time, to get one of those, you had to go to a good acting school. Now, apparently, all you have to do is go to a good yeshiva. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. That second Oscar was presented to you by Robert De Niro? Yes, it was a thrill, yes. Who gave you the first one, do you remember? Uh, Paul Apprentice. Paul Apprentice. And, yeah, yeah. You won that second Oscar on the night the Titanic won most of the awards. Right. 
And I understand that you were invited to their after party, but that there was a bit of a excursion, diversion taken first. Can you share what that entailed? It came, I came, I went back here to the center because after all, you know, the survivors were here. They couldn't invite so many people to the Oscars themselves. So I knew that they were, they were all here, the staff and the survivors. Watching and the this, show. Right. And this is was for them. Because I said, you know, the survivors, that they will, you know, they, this is dedicated to the survivors and to the... So I came back here with the Oscar and it was a night not to, not to... I'll never forget. Each one of them grabbed hold of the Oscar and they were tears in their eyes. And then Yeshiva boys came from next door and they started dancing. They came to my house. And my son was at Yeshiva University and he had no television. He went to a bar. And the bartender, when I won, the bar, he said, that's my dad. And the bartender then, drinks on the house for everybody. That's great. And gave everybody drinks. And, you know, it was unbelievable. That's fantastic. Now, at the Museum of Tolerance, you screen films made not only by Mariah, but also by others. By every, all the studios uh, have films here. So how do you decide which ones to show? Wh- whichever one have a theme. We, you know, as long as we're not going to show, for example, Murder Incorporated right. is not a film for the Museum of Tolerance. Right. <laughs> but a, a, any film with a strong social and humanitarian message is absolutely a film for the Museum of Tolerance. Do you get lobbied a lot? Because I know, as you yeah. know, Oscar season gets right. competitive. Oh, we take, no, we, we've, we have many films. For example, next week, uh, a few days from now, uh, we have, we're going to have uh, Remember, where I'm going to be on a panel with Martin Landau. Oh, wow. And, you know, on, right here at the Museum of Tolerance, we'll show the film first. And any film that has a great message, almost every, you know, during the Oscar season, a lot of the Oscar contenders are here. Well, that's what I was going to say. you got to humor me and give me a story about Harvey Weinstein, because somehow yeah, yeah. this guy has gotten just about every one of his movies shown here. Let's, rec- yeah. let's recall a bunch of them. Right. Sunshine, Life is right. Beautiful, Inglorious Bastard, right. Silver Linings Playbook, right. The Imitation Game. He's a character, isn't right. he? Oh, he's absolutely. You know, Harvey, <laughs> and he calls. He says, this is for the museum. He says, you got to, and you know, you, what can you do with that? <laughs> <laughs> we honored him. He's a very yes. Yeah, I was there that yeah, night. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Avi is a. <laughs> now he's obviously based in New York, so that yeah. probably precludes him from being on the board or something. Right. But what do you make of? He's somebody who has, on many occasions, I'm sure the reader is another one I left off that list accidentally. He's he's dealt with the Holocaust in a lot of his movies. Right. What do you what do you make of that? No, Avi has been very. You know, he makes sure he you know makes sure that all of his films especially the ones with a great social message, calls and has someone from his office call, say, this is, I think this is a great film for the Museum of Tolerance. And he's, he's always right. Yeah. The films that he sends here are good film. We wouldn't, if it was a film that absolutely had nothing to do with Kill what we're Bill. doing, we're not going right, right. you know, to screen it. You screen it first and you check out what it's about? or No, we check out first what it's about. That's what uh, I yeah, mean. That's yeah. what I mean. And we, you know, Lee Geff, the director of the museum, is excellent. He right. knows how to do that and, you know. Who attends those types of screenings? People from the community, members of the, you know, uh, uh, Ted Sarandos has been here a couple of times, and other people, uh, well, they all come. Is there such a thing as having too many Holocaust films? In the span when The Long Way Home won, I think it was something like four out of six years, the best documentary feature went to a film about the Holocaust, and so it's almost become kind of a running gag that you make a good film about the Holocaust, you've got a great chance with the Academy. And the reason I ask this is just 
do you think that having almost too much of this type of thing can numb people to the effect of a film about the Holocaust? Well, to a certain extent, I think we're playing catch up. Mm -hmm. Remember, the Holocaust was an epic event. One third of all of world Jewry was wiped out. And so the question is, how many stories are there to tell where six million people were murdered by the Nazis? A lot of stories. So let's say there were 10 films that were, uh, you know, recognized by the Academy. It's still a very small number. And so I think we have to look at it that way. It was really, and, and the reason it was an epic event is because this wasn't an event where somebody dropped the bomb and as a result of the bomb, 30,000 people, God forbid, or 100,000 people were killed. This was an event where 14 people sat in a room, seven of the 14 were PhDs, and the discussion was, how do you murder the whole Jewish people? So this is not a normal event. That most people also have the wrong impression about the Holocaust. They think the Holocaust was committed by goons, uneducated people. Yes, there were plenty of those, but there never would have been a Holocaust if it wouldn't be for the intellectuals. It's the intellectuals who came up with the idea to murder the Jews, the PhDs. That's what's so troubling about this event. Yeah. You know, because sometimes we say, oh, education is the buffer. In this case, education was not the buffer. Interesting. So on the home stretch here, I want to talk about you just as a guy. Forget about Rabbi Dean, founder. What do your friends call you? Well, my friends call me Moshe. Moshe. Moshe Chaim. People know me from yeshiva, call me Moshe Chaim. Uh, you know, and uh, I, I loved stickball, baseball, punch ball. Uh, I played basketball. And if you ask me how big was the court, about five feet. <laughs> I managed yeah. to get the swish. You right, know, right. I write in the book that I was um, Dick McGuire. My opponent was Bob Cousy. And we had a, another guy. He, he liked Sweetwater Clifton. <laughs> so I'm, I, like, I like sports. Right. Um, I'm a person who likes movies. In general, I, I never change. This has nothing to do with Mariah films has to do with Hopalong Cassidy and right. as the Chosset said, the Long Ranger right. and, and Tom Mix and, right. and all these things that I learned and, you know, from the Lower East Side. I always loved movies from the very start. I learned a lot from my mother. My mother was outspoken. My father was very quiet and reserved. And uh, both elements, I, I don't like a fanfare. I'm not used to it, you know, but the point, look, I accept it because I'm not saying that I would run away from it my, what I'm saying is I'm just an ordinary guy that was born in the Lower East Side and I pinch my cheek every day. Listen, I am a believer in Bashert and I believe, but I don't believe but people have misunderstanding. I don't mean Bashert that you don't, that a person doesn't get the credit. Somebody outside is pulling all the strings. I'm saying that if you try and you do something, the Talmud says a wonderful phrase in the Talmud, Habor Lutaya when someone does something pure, misayanoso, he or she will be helped along the road. That's great. Now, tell me about your family. Who comprises it and what do they do? Well, my wife is my life's partner. All the decisions I made, I asked her, and if she would have told me it's a bad idea to build a side business center, I probably would have withdrawn. 
So we got to give her kudos that yeah. she's the one. And uh, then I love my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. You have two sons. I have two sons. Uh, one, they, he wants to be a lawyer now. He's director of all of our, he, he runs our campus thing. Mm -hmm. And my other son, Avi, and uh, he, he is married to Annie. And uh, they live with us now because mm -hmm. they're building their, they're building a, they have a home in Santa Monica. It's not ready yet. How many grandchildren? <clears throat> I have uh, eight grandchildren, and I have uh, four, and one on, uh, actually great grandchildren. Four great grandchildren. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And you're a young guy still. You might have great great grandchildren yeah. one day. That's amazing. Well, and by the way, my wife stands on her own two feet. Yeah. You see, she's a social. People don't. For example, she. Uh, went into statistics, social. She was a city planner in mm -hmm. Vancouver. Ah, like an urban And yeah. she recognized very early, before me, I didn't know about this. I never heard of the word direct mail. She told me that the future, uh, when they started the center, we had no members. The center has a constituency today of 400,000. It has 250,000 active members. She created this whole, this whole system. She was like the membership she director. Yes, yes. She works here as well. Yeah, she yes. correct created from the beginning. Yeah. From when we were in the old building in 1977. Wow. And I have many colleagues that are here. Rabbi Cooper from Vancouver. Aaron Breitbart, the senior researcher, was from Vancouver. Not Vancouver. They, they were originally from New York. Yeah, yeah. Went to Vancouver with me. Came with me here. Wow, so people that have been along the whole way. Yeah. How many uh, years does that go back if they were there with you in Vancouver? Oh, they, they, um, they were about 35 years they're here. So they went from wherever they were to Vancouver with you, and then when you came here, they came. Also. They came with yes. you. That's amazing. Yeah, and um, many people here work. They love working here. People, because you know, we treat. I hope they treat people nicely, and uh, you know, we don't. Uh, it's it's hard work, but sure. it's worth it. And uh, in the end, uh, you know, I, I, people say, "When do you ever think there'll ever be no need for a sign reasonable center?" And, uh, and well, the answer to that is. Uh, evil existed in the times of Moses. Evil existed in the times of Jesus. Evil existed in the times of Muhammad. And to be a human being and have freedom of choice, you're always going to have evil. Yeah. And you have to be smart enough uh, to basically stand up early enough because we pay dear prices for dialing in too late. Totally. What language do you speak at home? I speak, of course, English, English, but I'm fluent in Yiddish. Yiddish, because that's what you grew up yeah, with. I grew up with Yiddish, and people say that my Yiddish is very Hamish or Hamish. <laughs> yeah. Yiddish is a wonderful language, and I wrote a lot of it in the book. I write Yiddish, but I translate it somehow. Ah, gotcha. Because in order to give you a flavor of what Yiddish was. Sure. In what part of town, may I ask, do you live? Just are you West nearby? L.A. I live West nearby. Very close. On Edris Drive, just very a few nice. blocks from here. What does an average day consist of for you? Uh, lots of headaches, <laughs> and uh, you got to fix this and fix that. Right. You know, we have meetings, we have a lot of projects, right? And uh, you know, have to watch out because you don't want to overdo it. But right. you know, some pro the projects are important. I uh, I believe very much in the project in Israel because I think that if we look what's going on in the Middle East, all the countries, and you say, look, the Pope, Pope Francis, was complaining about Christian sites throughout the Middle East. It's very important to find that coalition of the good. In the Muslim world, you have a huge problem. I do not think that I disagree with President Obama in making it smaller than it is. 
it is neither that small and you can't I'm not I would I would say look there's a Pew study the Pew study says 77% of all Muslims oppose jihad against innocent civilians oppose which is phenomenal Mm -hmm. majority overwhelming majority 22% are in favor 22% of 1 billion 600 million is about 300 million people uh, how many people fought on Hitler's side in World War II? 197 million. So, yeah. even if we get rid of ISIS, you're going to have a problem with Islamic fundamentalism. So what's the way to fix that? And the problem with fixing that is the overwhelmingly decent and abiding, law-abiding citizens that are, that are Muslims are scared of the jihadists. Um, so when you say, let's say in Paris, you have 6,000 imams, but the 6,000 imams, many of them are frightened for their lives. Because if you're an imam and you have somebody in there and you're sitting and, you're, and the person is a jihadist, he's not embarrassed to tell you, if you say anything I don't like, watch your back. Um, that's what we face. Yeah. So it's true that you, the, the overwhelming majority of the world's Muslims want nothing to do with extremism. But the minority is not a small minority. Mm-hmm. That's my point. Absolutely. Do you have a theory of the best way to change the hearts and minds? Well, the best way is to, that's why you need the Western civilization to keep prodding them and to give them the courage to stand up against them. And, you, you, know, you know, France, look what's happening. If, if, believe me, if the Jews leave France, many Christians will leave France. Mm-hmm. It, it's not a, simple, it, not a simple solution. It, what they got to do is they got to basically stand up and say, look, anyone that believes in the kind of extremism that says any form of jihad is permissible against civilians has to be read the riot act. Mm-hmm. There should be zero tolerance for them. Otherwise, uh, they'll get stronger. Yeah. What are your hobbies? Oh, my hobbies. My hobbies are to spend vacation time with my, with my children, grandchildren in Jerusalem or anywhere I go around, you know, around the world. Um, I love to, you know, sort of relax, watch television. What I'm show? Give me some fan. shows or movies recently. I, I watch them all. You know, I, I watch, uh, you, you name it and I watch it. Give me, when give I have me, a just give me one. Give me two that you're right now into. What is the, the that you've most recently watched? First of all, last month I've been busy with all the Academy pictures over the top. But I like all the, I like forensic um, Oh, CSI? Yes, yeah. I watch the CSI. I watch also a lot of sports, you know, uh-huh. sports events, football, basketball. And I like college basketball. Oh, yeah? Which yeah, team? Col- well, I'm, in the, I'm still for the East Coast. Yes. So shame to say. <laughs> I'm, I'm voting for the East Coast teams. What would that be like? UConn, Syracuse? No, UConn. Yeah, Syracuse. I, yeah. In college, I played. I wasn't on the team. But when I went to high school, the RJJ had a basketball team. Uh-huh. And we lost a lot of games because uh, we, some, some of our players were wearing yarmulkes. And when they were dribbling down court and they had an opportunity, an easy layup, 
they lost their yarmulke, so they picked the yarmulke up and Instead let the other guy. Yeah. <laughs> I would have done That's, that after. Yeah, right. You got to prioritize <laughs> First here. get the ball Right, in. right, right. And you're a Chicago Cubs fan? Yeah. Well, Chicago Cubs, I root for the underdogs. So okay. That's when Andrew Dawson hit that homer. Oh, yeah. And I had to, and I had to chill my stomach because I was sitting there. Mrs. Tommy taught me La Sorda. Ah, oh my goodness! Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but no, I mean I didn't want You're to. <laughs> now <laughs> I love the Harlem Globetrotters. Oh sure, I I used to go to every opportunity to Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> Goose Tatum, oh, Marcus yeah. Haynes. Yeah, you know, great dribbler. <laughs> yeah, of course. I, I knew all of them. What's your greatest attribute and your greatest shortcoming? If you were being completely wow. honest. Well, the, my great my greatest shortcoming is I think well I just uh, you know I try I try to uh, people think that I'm too easy with people sometimes. My father was a person I don't like to well you know my father was not argumentative so I li- I try to stay away from that sure except in defense of the Jewish people sure that's that's my responsibility as the head of the Weasel Set. But normally I'm very low key, uh, and I love humor. By the way, you didn't ask me about yeah, humor. please, yeah. I mean, I, every comedian. I mean, I, Who, I give watched me a few that you love. What I mean, I love them all. I loved Letterman. I loved all the all the guy. I loved uh, what's his name, Leno. Yeah, and I love Jackie Mason. It's great. How I about mean, this new crop? You know, do you know about Amy Schumer? Do you know about? Yeah. What do you think? Well, I think you know, <laughs> pretty good. Yeah. Not like the uh, the Not classic. The old, yeah. Listen, Chris Rock was yeah, an MC at the Wisdom Center. Really. Did he go over the line? I don't know. Let's put it this way. He was cutting edge. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so for people who don't understand what it means to be an Orthodox Jew, can you talk about what it means and entails in your own life? How does that shape your life? Well, it, it shapes my life because an Orthodox Jew believes in the Torah. He believes it was the Word of God. And that the, these these commandments were given as a way to keep the Jewish people loyal to the covenant of Abraham. And uh, that it also, as an Orthodox Jew, we recognize the greatest gift of the Torah is freedom of choice. And freedom of choice explains the biggest problem with people who believe to outsiders is they say like this, where's God with all this evil why doesn't he take anybody's call have you seen him lately these are the questions they ask but they don't realize freedom of choice means like this God created us in the image of God we were created freedom of choice means that unlike the dust particle which lays on the bottom of the Grand Canyon if you touch the dust particle and you ask him, how long have you been here? And the guy will say, the, the dust will say, oh, I've been here for about six and a half billion years. And so that's one form of existence whereby you don't have freedom of choice and you just stay there for six. So life is short. Man is mortal. That's the way God created the world. And the the most important thing is that if you believe in a God that gives you the opportunity that somebody could be a stockbroker, another person could be a chef, I could be the head of the Wiesendorf Center, you could be a reporter, an engineer, whatever it is, that's because we have freedom of choice. So if you have freedom of choice, God is not a Coke machine. 
He's not going to answer. Here, a person says, I have freedom of choice, but now I'm in a rut. So I have the flu, and I want you right now to send me a cure, and here's a dollar I can put into the machine, send me the Coke. It doesn't work that way. God says, we, you, your, your existence is not like the particle, dust particle, the Grand Canyon. You could stay there for six billion years, but you never did anything. You have a human life, which is mortal. It's finite. And you don't expect God. So the biggest problem is that there are people who believe in God, but want him to interfere with human creation every second of the day. He should go to this hospital, cure this person, go this one. He doesn't do that. God is an anonymous donor. That will answer the question. <laughs> that will answer the question as to why we pray. Because you could say to me, Rabbi, if you don't, if you believe in freedom of choice, what are you praying to God for if he can't help? No, God can help. But he's an anonymous donor. He's not going to tell you, I sent you to cure. Stand up right now and you're cured. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> he works as an So God in history has sent us the cure because, look, people say, Holocaust? Well, the Holocaust wasn't caused by God. Hitler wasn't representing God, didn't send him. These are human beings, and these are human problems and have to be solved by human beings. And along the way, God does his bit. Uh, if he didn't do his bit along the way, I cannot explain to you rationally how there would still be a Jewish people. We should have been extinct, all the hardships that we faced. But we're still here because as long as we do our part, the anonymous donor kicks in. <laughs> now, you've met a lot of interesting people, from presidents and prime ministers to popes and queens to movie stars. Which of these meetings has meant the most to you? One meeting I'll never forget was that meeting there. We're looking at a photo with uh, President, President Reagan, Reagan. Where Simon Wiesenthal was like, almost the first, you know, you went, met a president of the United States in the Oval Office. So he goes in and he's, he was like very emotional and he says, Mr. President, it, it, it is for me, what can I say, an honor to be here in the Oval Office with the President of the United States. And Ronald Reagan, with tears in his eyes, he began to tear up in his eyes. Reagan looked him right in the face and he said, Mr. Wiesendahl, I assure you, believe me, the honor is all mine. And then, he went, and then afterwards he went on and told me, at the side, he told us, the president told us, and he said, you know, Simon Wiesenthal, he said, you know, he said, I've thought about him many times, how he could go on in life. He lost so many members of his family. And he said, you do not know what an honor it is to meet a greet here in the, in the Oval Office. And later on, when Reagan retired, we got a call from the Secret Service the first week that he retired. Came back to California. Mm -hmm. The Secret Service called. The president wants to know, do you have a high school group that he can speak to? Doesn't matter who. He'd like to come by. And he came by an hour later. He came by the Wiesenthal side. Yeah. Oh, he's, he was there as president. And then he came back after and just went over to a group. And over the group, he told the group, he said, I had the honor. I want you to know my, one of my great honors was to meet Simon Wiesenthal in the Oval Office. And so Simon Wiesenthal didn't know, sitting there in Vienna and just looking at a map and hunting Nazis, he didn't know how many people in the world 
became his fans. Right. Democrats and Republicans. Sure. President Clinton said wonderful things about him. Uh, you know, when he presented him with the, he, he couldn't come because of his, his ill health. Yeah, yeah. And I, but he said wonderful things about him, uh, President Clinton. Now, you mentioned Reagan retiring. Have you ever thought about retiring and what you would do in retirement? <laughs> well, I, I didn't think I have, a, I have a, some work to be done. Yeah. I have to finish our museum in Jerusalem. I think that it's a bad thing to retire. You know, you have to get a person should be active because when you're not active, you, you, you basically, you know, a brain is there, it wants to be used. Right. And if you, uh, you know, uh, lack of use is a great dishonor. So, you're, so that's a no. So no, uh, as long as I can, I, God gives me the strength to continue, I will continue in, in, the, in the path and, you know, and always be a, try to be of service to this great organization that I had the honor of, uh, of founding. I do have to ask you, as a active member of the Academy, people right now are debating whether or not the Academy judged this year's nominees fairly, or if some form of bias, conscious or otherwise, kept people of color from being nominated in any of the major categories. Now, since this is allegedly an issue of intolerance, I have to ask, what's your take on it? Because a lot of people have now been told they're going to lose right. their well, voting for, rights. Well, first, let me say this. Yeah. I'm all for inclusion. Yes. I think that the Academy, the Board of Governors got together. It was a unanimous decision. They, I think they did the right thing. But I also think that all the members who have been dedic- who dedicated their lives to the academy, who were always there, who took, the, took their positions seriously, should not lose their any privileges. If I were the one making the decision, I would do both the things. More inclusion, more minority memberships as they've done, and keeping the rights of all of the people that dedicated their lives and were of service to the Academy. So what would be the end result? So the Academy would have a little bit more members than they used to. Not such a bad idea. Right, right. But that would be my thing, but I, I, I fully agree that the Academy, I think, did the right thing by making the new changes. The only, if I were adding a postscript, I would have only said, keep the voting rights to the older generation as long as they, they're still here. Now, how about some of these people, Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith, for instance, who I know have been supporters of the Wiesenthal Center. Right. They are saying that in order to further highlight this issue, there should be a boycott of the Oscars. Well, I, I don't believe in a, in, a, in a boycott of the Oscars. I do believe that they should increase minority membership in the Academy, and they've taken those steps. But I do not believe in a boycott of the Academy. I think that, uh, you know, the Academy is a wonderful organization that promotes films. Films often open our eyes to these very issues of bigotry, of discrimination. And this is the Academy's night. And I, I, I would not, uh, my, my own case is, I'm not going to the Academy Awards simply because I, have, I happen to have an, a, a, a something to do. Right. That I have to do where I'm involved in a, in a big project now, as I said, in Jerusalem and other things. But uh, I, am, I would not boycott the Academy. I do not. That's not my view. Regardless of where you're watching it, which... I watch it all. I've never missed it. You've never missed it. No, never missed it. Any, uh, since 
I since genocide, I've never missed any year of the Academy. That's great. I watch it from beginning to end. So this year, you know, the nominees are out. Second round of balloting is about to begin. I vote. You so vote. I can't tell you. No, <laughs> but you without. So this is this is why I want to frame the question yeah. this way. Yeah. Without in any way saying this right. is what's getting your vote. Right. Are there one or two films that have most impressed you this year? There were a tremendous amount of films yeah. that I loved. Right. Uh, Spotlight, Room, The Martian, Mad, Ma- Mad Max, Short Big Story, uh, Bridge of Spies, and I have uh, four others. And also in the documentary branches, in the foreign films. By the way, I make it my business to watch these films. Yes. And yes, you know, so what happens is that you get a chance it's been a wonderful education especially right. foreign films right. introduce you to different cultures right. and this I year take Son it of seriously. Saul yeah and Son of Saul of course is a foreign film and an amazing uh, you know documentary because you know the Sunder Commando in Jewish life after the war there were some survivors who served in that unit unfortunately and then came back and settled in their community and there was a lot of discussions about them yeah but it's uh, you know there, there, there are many great films the last question I have for you is this you are constantly made aware of and making others aware of issues of intolerance around the world that being the case as you look towards the future and we've talked about ISIS and all of these things that there are that are troubling in the world today can you still feel optimistic about the future oh yes because I believe remember I believe in the Talmudic principle if you go to do something good, someone helps you along the way. And if you look at history, take a look. You know, when I'm doing now a film on Ben-Gurion. Now, Ben-Gurion, he said, how did he get the guts to declare the state of Israel? Because in, when he was doing it, it was, a, it was a, you know, toss of the dice. So he said, during the Blitz, he was in London. And he couldn't stay in his apartment. So he went down the underground, the trains. And that's where they slept, thousands of people. Someone had a radio. And there was Winston Churchill saying, never give up. He says that there will be better day. And Ben-Gurion said, I stole a little Churchill and put him in me. And that's how the world survives. And so... I'm disappointed that anti-Semitism, Hitler, in his last testament, he wrote a will before he committed suicide. He wrote the following. In a few centuries, the world will be back to the ideas that I have promulgated, anti-Semitism. So Hitler thought it would take 200 years, but it only took 70 years. And anti-Semitism is every place in the world. And Hitler was wrong. It's faster than he thought. But just like there are elements of anti-Semitism. I'm optimistic about the future because I believe there will be more Churchills found. The world doesn't just exist of anti-Semitism coming back. The Churchills come back to history too. And therefore, and they will overcome the evil. And that's the way history works. You know, uh, you know evil is there, but so is goodness. And if you have a, a person of strength and courage to stand up to them, that's what it'll take. Eventually, it may not get there right away, but eventually the confrontation is always won when good versus evil. In the end, 
as long as there is a God in the world, good triumphs. Well, I can't thank you enough for this and for all the work that you do. And thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Pleasure. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.